You know, I've never been great with boundaries or holding back. I've always been the type of person that likes to get as close to that edge as possible without falling over. I don't necessarily think it's like the thrill seeker mentality in me as much as it is just some unsubstantiated overconfidence. Like it just is not deserved really at all. But it's gotten me into trouble before as you can imagine. The summer of 2013, my wife and I uh, celebrated our third anniversary by taking a trip to Breckenridge. I don't know if you've ever been to Breckenridge in the summer, but it is beautiful, and there are a lot of really fun things to do in that area, especially on peak eight. There's just a lot of really cool stuff. Like, I think our absolute favorite was they will allow you to bring your mountain bikes. You can strap them on the back of the ski lifts right up to the top, and then you can mountain bike down the mountain. It was awesome. And again, despite my proclivity for pushing things a little too far sometimes past those boundaries, it was not, in fact, the mountain biking that did me in. We also took an off-road mountain Segway tour, which I know what you're thinking, and I was just as shocked as you are right now. Segways are not just, in fact, for middle-aged dudes that have their t-shirts tucked into their jean shorts so they can quickly access their cell phone clip. It defies the laws of the known nature, I know, but it's true. And yet still, it was not the segues that sent me to the medic's tent that day. Despite a few warnings from our instructor, Tommy, you're about to find that edge we talked about. No, no, it was the alpine slide. You know, the attraction that's really there more for the kids than it is the adults If you've never seen an alpine slide before, it's basically this long concrete chute that just kind of winds and winds its its way down the mountain, and you ride on top of something that is very reminiscent of like an open-air bobsled that has just one control, a brake, allowing you to control your speed. Now, we were alpine slide rookies, so naturally... At the top of the mountain, I asked the 16-year-old who was in charge of this death trap, Hey, dude, which is the fastest of the three tracks? He's like, bro, listen, you got to do track C. You basically don't even need to touch the brakes. You can fly down. As long as you lean into the curves, you'll be totally fine. Now, there was one word in that sage wisdom that he offered that I seemed to gloss over a little bit, which, of course, was the word basically. You basically don't need to touch the brakes all the way down. And I realized my mistake about two-thirds of the way down the ride as I came careening around a super tight corner way too fast, my beard flapping in the wind, (laughs) when suddenly I found myself tipped over onto my side, sliding down the concrete, leaving bits of the flesh that used to cover my knee and arm on the track behind me before somehow I was able to push myself back up. I righted the ship, so to speak, and I basically just rode the brakes the rest of the way down at about two miles per hour. Now, I knew as soon as I got down to the bottom that the road rash I had just sustained needed some medical attention, but 
first, I had to get a few details straight because there was no way I was walking into that medic's tent and admitting that I had just hurt myself on the kitty slide. And so I conjured the best story I could muster involving my mountain bike, a double black diamond trail I'm pretty sure was called Hellcat's Revenge, and a runaway rabid moose. And I had just cemented the last details into my mind as we opened the door to walk into the medic's tent, my wife shaking her head as she followed me in. And before I could utter a single word of my well-rehearsed fabrication, the nurse just kind of very quickly glanced up at me and then went right back to what she was doing and said, Alpine slide, huh? Clearly, I was not the only overconfident customer who didn't understand the meaning of the word basically. If you are anything like I am, we, we tend to feel stifled by rules, by boundaries, by guidelines, even though we know somewhere in the back of our minds that those things exist not to deprive us of fun, but ultimately to keep us safe. I mean, think of guardrails on a windy mountain pass, or the door to the grizzly bear exhibit at the zoo, or indeed the break on the alpine slide. Those things are not there to limit our fun. Rather, they are there to keep us safe. Because if we basically ignore those things, there's some serious potential for getting seriously hurt. My name is Pastor Tommy. I have the distinct privilege of working on our Creek team, our student ministry team here at Plum Creek. And um, on Sunday nights, we have a ton of fun. And I also get the privilege today of, of starting a new series called Purple. And one more time, if you've just come in in the last several minutes and you haven't heard the warnings yet, throughout the course of this sermon, it's going to get a little bit PG-13. So if you've got some younger kids in the room, now would be a great chance to take them over to the kids' area, just FYI. Now, purple, because, you know, guys are blue, girls are pink, and even though I'm colorblind, I've read that when those two things come together, it makes purple. And in the student ministry world, we use the phrase all the time, hey, no, no purpling, no purpling, stop making out. Don't worry, that doesn't happen on Sunday nights. But let's be real, in the adult world, God designed us to purple. Purpling is freaking awesome, okay? At least in the right context. But outside of that marriage context, it's also incredibly dangerous. Whether it's having sex before we're married or maybe extramarital relations while we're married or, or looking at pornography no matter what stage of life we're in, all of these things can do some serious damage, wreak some serious havoc in our lives. And there's actually a lot of science that backs all of this up. It's almost as if God knew exactly what he was talking about. And so our goal throughout this series is going to be to regret-proof our deathbeds and our marriage beds from this day forward. To regret-proof our deathbeds and our marriage beds, and that last phrase is really important, from this 
day forward. Because none of us, as much as we might want to, we can't go back, we can't change the past, we can't undo what has already been done. And yet at the same time, our past should not keep us from taking steps to follow God's plan, to honor Him, and to regret-proof our deathbeds and our marriage beds from this day forward. Because our God is a God of second chances. He's a God of healing. He has the power to set us on a new path towards hope and healing, no matter what our past has looked like. And so I would encourage you throughout this series, let's try not to look back in regret. Let's look forward in hope as we open God's word. But to be completely honest, regret-proofing our deathbeds and our marriage beds in our society today has become exponentially more difficult, right? Because our, our society is completely oversaturated with over-sexualization. It reminds me of the quote from Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Even if you've never heard that name, you've probably heard this line from his his poem, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, it says, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. It's like dying of dehydration in the middle of the ocean, surrounded by salt water. All we want to do is just take a little drink, but we know that it's going to leave us worse off for having taken the drink with a bitter aftertaste in our mouth and ultimately really just thirstier than we were in the first place. This is the situation in which God's people, the Israelites, found themselves in the Old Testament book of Exodus. If you have your Bibles, if you have your devices, you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. And as you turn there, let me set up the context a little bit here, because I'm sure it's a story that most of you are familiar with. You've seen the movie The Prince of Egypt, right? Where, Where God's people, the Israelites, they were slaves to the Egyptians, God raises up a leader among them named Moses. He tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and to say, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no way, it's not happening. And it leads to this series of unfortunate events where ultimately every firstborn son of the Egyptians dies. Pharaoh's finally had enough and he says, all right, get out of here. They gather their stuff, they leave, but they find themselves up against the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army behind them. God uses Moses to perform yet another miracle. He he, uh, separates the Red Sea, and they cross through on dry ground to safety. They get to the other side. They pause just long enough to, like, sing songs of praise to God and, and to celebrate a little bit. But then, picking up in Exodus 15, verses 22 to 24, it says, Then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea, and they moved out into the desert of Shur. They traveled in this desert for three days without finding any water. When they came to the oasis of Merah, the water was too bitter to drink, so they called the place Merah, which means bitter. Great job, naming committee. Then the people complained and turned against Moses. What are we going to drink, they demanded. Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. The Israelites had just journeyed for three solid days away from the Red Sea, this body of water, which is, by the way, one of the saltiest bodies of water on earth. When they finally do find some water, it's bitter, it's undrinkable. They're surrounded by water, and yet they know if they drink any of it, it's only going to make the situation worse for them. It will only make them thirstier. 
I don't have to tell you that in our culture, again, we are absolutely oversaturated with over-sexualization. We are bombarded by sex daily. In the movies we watch, the TV shows that we see, the advertisements, billboards as you're driving down the street, and even in our very pockets on social media. Sex is everywhere. We can't hardly get away from it. Just look at a couple of these ads. This one from Carl's Jr., which, by the way, is pretty tame for Carl's Jr. I don't know about you, but I don't know if there's anything that I can think of that is less sexy than eating a Carl's Jr. burger. <laughs> Unless, of course, you find stanky farts and heartburn to be really, really sexy, which I don't personally. And then this Adidas ad, my goodness. I have worn Adidas shoes. I can promise you it has never led to this moment. <laughs> Neither of these products have anything to do with sex, and yet that is what we are being sold. We see this kind of imagery all day long, every day, and we cannot help but be affected by it. It changes the way we see the world around us. It changes the way we see ourselves. I mean, think of the rampant body image issues that are going on in our culture. Those body image issues don't exist because of the standard we see set out on the street. They exist because of the standard we see set in the media. It affects the way we see the world around us. It affects the way we see ourselves. And the sad thing is that these images are just they're the PG-13 version of what we are bombarded with on a daily basis. A recent study suggests that the average age of first exposure to pornography, and this is sickening and it's sad, is six years old. I, I'm sure that every single one of us has been on the internet, you you have a pop-up that comes up, you end up seeing an image you never intended to see, and at six years old, you could be playing on Disney.com, and in one or two accidental clicks later, you see something that you can't unsee. One out of every three 13 to 14-year-olds is already addicted to pornography. 72% of males age 18 to 24 report regular pornography use. And as much as we might think it's just a guy issue, it's, it's really not. In fact, one out of every three porn users is actually female. And there's a lot of really, really interesting studies in science that talk about just the devastation that comes with using pornography. If you want more information on that, I would encourage you to go to fightthenewdrug.org. There's a lot of really, really great resources there. I would encourage you to check it out. And my guess is, honestly, for many of you, as I started talking about statistics in the first place, we sort of just kind of glaze over. Because we already know that this is an epidemic in our culture. The over-sexualization of our culture is just rampant to the point that the idea of completely avoiding it is pretty much impossible unless we decided that we're going to go full M. Night Shyamalan, make our own village out in the middle of nowhere, cut ourselves off from the world around us, which really doesn't sound like that great of an idea because I don't know how to make my own Chick-fil-A nuggets, okay? <laughs> and besides, I don't think that that's what God would want us to do anyway, because how in the world are we supposed to share the gospel with the world around us if we're completely disengaged from it? 
But it does mean that we have to be incredibly intentional and careful. Otherwise, that temptation eventually will become too strong. And just like drinking salt water when we're dying of dehydration, it only makes things worse. It, it only makes us thirstier with every drink. And I think oftentimes our, our biggest issue is that we find ourselves in the same predicament as Moses. If we back up in his life a few chapters to Exodus chapter 2, Moses, he finds himself in the situation. He kills a guy out of anger because this Egyptian is beating up one of his Israelite family, not his family, but like just a brother in Christ in Israel. And the issue, though, in verse 12, it says, after looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. Like, and I think way too often we find ourselves in that predicament, hopefully not killing people, but the fact that we look around, no, no one's watching. It's just a couple of images on my phone. It's just some harmless flirting at the office, our lack of accountability, our lack of guidelines, rules, boundaries, they make us far more susceptible. We need accountability, which accountability really is just taking steps today to remove or at least reduce some of those temptations so we don't have to hope that we can overcome them tomorrow. We need that kind of accountability. We know that. And yet so often we find ourselves railing against those boundaries, thinking, why in the world is God even doing this to us? We believe the lies of the enemy that God is just, he's trying to rain on our parade. He's trying to just make sure that you don't have fun. He's trying to keep pleasure from you. God is mean. We need to straighten the record here real quick, okay? God wants you to have amazing, mind-blowing sex, okay? Sex is a gift from God. Sex was designed by God. There's an entire book in the Bible called the Song of Solomon that is it's dedicated to romance, to sexual tension. I mean, think of chapter 8, verse 10b, where the woman says, when my lover looks at me, he is delighted with what he sees. Come on, ladies. I mean, and then she says of him in chapter 5, verse 15, his legs are like pillars of marble set into sockets of gold. My wife has never said that about me. Proverbs 5.19 says, let your wife's breasts satisfy you always. Husbands, if that's not one of your top 10 favorite verses, I'm guessing it's because you just heard it for the first time right now, which proves you should be reading your Bible, all right? It's the living word of God. There's some really good stuff in there, okay? When Eve is created out of Adam's rib, we know that Adam is completely taken back in that moment because the guy just starts spitting poetry, and that doesn't happen for us all the time, right? He's like, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And guess what? God doesn't strike him down in that moment. He's not like, Adam, you pervert, what are you saying? Because God designed sex. He, he, he has given it to us as a gift, and it is incredibly pleasurable, but it's also incredibly powerful, which is why 
He also gave us guidelines, boundaries, rules, not to rain on our parade, but to keep us safe. I mean, think of this. If you went and bought a chainsaw from the local hardware store, you wouldn't even a little bit balk at the fact that it comes with a ton of safety warnings, right? You understand they're not trying to rain on your parade or keep you from having fun. They just don't want you to cut your arm off. And yet I think we lose sight of that when it comes to sex, when it comes to God. And we have this tendency, again, to believe the lies of the enemy, he just doesn't want you to have fun. God isn't trying to ruin our fun. He's just trying to protect us because sex is powerful. And just like fire, if it's controlled and if it's in the right context, it's wonderful. But outside of that context, it's dangerous. And sex outside of the marriage context, again, whether that's before marriage or extramarital affairs or, or pornography, those things are incredibly dangerous, and there's a lot of science to back all of these things up. In fact, a study was done talking about the chemicals that fire in your brain when you have sex, the chief amongst them being oxytocin. And they realized that with each new sexual partner, the release and the effects of those chemicals are diminished. That means that with each new sexual partner, you become physiologically incapable of forming as deep of a connection with that person. God, I think so often we hear God say don't and we think he's just trying to be mean, but God's really, he's not saying just don't, he's saying don't hurt yourselves. He's trying to protect us. Obviously God knows all of this, he designed our bodies. So here's the main thought for today. You might wanna write this down. The problem isn't having a sex drive, it's letting sex drive. Students in the room, listen to this. The problem is not having a sex drive. God gave you a sex drive. The problem is when we let sex drive in our lives. For those of you who are young adults, you're not quite married yet, the problem for you is not having a sex drive. We get ourselves into trouble when we let sex drive. It's the same in marriage. We get ourselves into trouble when we let sex drive and we start looking for that release outside of the marriage covenant. For every God-given desire, there is a righteous fulfillment of that desire. Your desire for sex is not wrong. It's not even a little bit sinful. But if it's not kept in the context of marriage, it's, it's incredibly dangerous. God isn't trying to keep pleasure from you. He just has something far better in store for you. Really, it kind of reminds me of a pineapple. See, when, when Christopher Columbus left for the New World, no one in Europe had ever seen a pineapple before. And when they were brought back, they were incredibly rare, they were incredibly valuable, which meant that people went crazy for them, as you can imagine, especially if you really like pineapple. Adjusting for inflation, the rarity of the pineapple meant that one pineapple cost about $8,000. That meant that there was a time when taking a single bite of a pineapple was the defining moment of someone's life. 
They were so rare and so valuable that people wouldn't even eat them. They would just like display them like this, have their friends over, and they would be like, check out this pineapple. It's crazy. It's going to blow your mind. And they would have these pineapple viewing parties. What's interesting to think about is that the pineapple itself has not really changed. Maybe a few more chemicals because of how we grow them. But the pineapple itself has not really changed. Only our attitude toward it because of our exposure to it. See, our exposure to and regular consumption of the pineapple has really devalued it in a lot of ways. I think maybe that's exactly what has happened in our culture when it comes to sex. Our culture's overexposure to it has devalued it. When it's exclusive, when sex is just between one person and the other person, you would never find yourselves lying in bed next to your partner thinking and comparing them to their performance that you've had with other people. You would never be fighting images in your mind of what you saw on your phone last week. It's, It's rarity, it's exclusivity would exponentially enhance the experience. It would be supremely special insanely valuable, and yet in our culture, it's become as commonplace and average as a bite of pineapple. God doesn't want to keep pleasure from you. He just has something far better in store for you. Today, pineapples are easy come, easy go. It's just not special like it was, which is exactly why God wants to protect us when it comes to sex by giving us boundaries so that we can experience a better, pure version of it within the marriage context. I have to imagine in a room this size that there are some of you sitting there thinking, listen, that sounds awesome, or at least it would if I hadn't already had sex before getting married, or if I hadn't already stepped outside of that marriage covenant, or if I hadn't already developed a pornography Addiction, that would be awesome. But the good news is, this is not the end of the story. In Exodus 15, 25, it continues, So Moses cried out to the Lord for help, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Moses threw it into the water, and this made the water good to drink. At first glance, this seems so random, right? Like of all the things God could have told Moses to do... In order to make that water pure again, why why a stick? Why a piece of wood? Why why a tree? Until we remember back to the Garden of Eden when God placed Adam and Eve, he said, you can eat of any fruit of any tree in this garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, it was a tree that provided the context for our downfall. But it was also a tree that provided the context for our salvation. God loved us so much that he sent his son to die a criminal's death on the cross. And because of that tree, what was bitter and harmful can be made sweet and pure. Because of that tree where there was death and decay, there can be new life. Because of that tree, a broken and painful past filled with regret and shame can be made new and can be mended and set on a path towards hope and healing. That tree in the water makes all 
all the difference. That tree in the water of our lives can take what the world has made into something bitter and make it sweet again. In the last part of this passage, God says in Exodus 26b, I am the Lord who heals you physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. Sex outside of God's plan has so many consequences in our lives, and God wants so badly to heal us from those and to set us on a path towards hope and restoration. He wants to help us to regret-proof our deathbeds and our marriage beds so we can make it to the end of our lives and hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. The problem isn't having a sex drive. It's when we let sex drive in our lives because it really should be the Holy Spirit in the driver's seat. Not because God wants to contain us or control us, but because he has something so much better in store for us when we can get this right by following his plan. Again, we can't change the past, but we can decide that we're going to honor God from this day forward. We can decide, I want those waters in my life that have turned bitter because of the choices that I have made. I want those to be sweet again. But we have to make effort, we have to take steps towards allowing those boundaries into our lives. Again, we need that accountability. I mean, how hard would it be as, as families to say, hey, listen, we're going to charge all of our phones in the living room every night when we go to sleep. That way we're not tempted in the middle of the night. We, we're going to take steps. You know, I, I know that I, I've probably been flirting a little bit too much at work. I'm going I'm to make sure that I'm giving some accountability in that area. When those moments of temptation arise, and they will arise, we can remind ourselves over and over again that the Holy Spirit who is at work in me is so much stronger than the evil desires in me, as long as I surrender myself completely to Him. Here's one that we can all do together this week. Every single time we take a drink of water, which by the way, you should be drinking eight glasses of water a day, okay? We need to up our water. Every time you take a drink of water, we can just remind ourselves the work of Jesus on the cross, that tree, that piece of wood can make the bitter in my life become sweet again. He can set that back into the right context. I have to imagine in a room this size that there are people who have never experienced the amazing grace and love that Jesus is offering to us. So I want to give you a chance right now if you know that, man, there's, there's been some bitter things in my life, and it's because of choices I've made in the past, we can never earn our way back to God, but he wants a relationship with us so badly, and through Jesus, that is possible. So I'm going to ask everyone to, to close your eyes, bow your head, let's pray together. But if that's you, and you know, man, I, I've made some mistakes in my life. I've never prayed this prayer, I've never given myself over to Jesus, but I I would love to experience the freedom that comes from the cross. The Bible says that when we give ourselves over to him, that we are new creations. The old has passed away. Behold, there is new life. If you want to experience that today for the first time, I'd ask you to take a step of boldness and courage and just to raise your hand. We would love to lead you in that prayer. 
It will change your life forever. Nothing will be the same again. If, you, if that's you, if you've raised your hand, let's, let's pray this. Just pray this after I pray it. Father, thank you for your amazing love. I'm sorry for the sins that I've committed. I'm sorry from turning away from your plan. Please forgive me. Jesus, I want to experience new life. I want you to radically change me from the inside out. I want to follow after you. Help me to live my life completely for you. It's in your name that we pray. Before we finish, I'd ask you to keep your eyes closed still, your heads bowed. I also know that in a room this size that there are those of us who struggle with this very thing. And if you are believing the lies of the enemy, you need to know that they're just that. You are not the only one. God has given all of us a sex drive, and it's so easy for that to spiral out of control, out of the right context. And so if you know that you need some accountability, you need some healing in this area of your lives, I would encourage you to raise your hands for that as well. And I would love to pray for us here today. That's amazing. Thank you so much for your bravery. Father, man, we love you and we understand that we cannot do this without you. Jesus, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would infiltrate our lives, that you would work as only you can, that you would give, give us the boldness and the courage that we need to step out and to live a life that's countercultural. That, God, we can, we can put those boundaries in place in our lives. We can give ourselves over to you completely. God, we want to be made new. We want the, the waters of our lives to become sweet again, and we know that's only possible through you. God, help us to seek after you. Help us to live lives that would honor you and your plan for our lives. We thank you for your amazing grace. It's your name that we pray. Amen.